When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm at home in Brighton. Uh, elsewhere, not very far away in Brighton, is also my producer, Phil Berman. It's Hove. You've got to get the distinction. Oh, God. OK, let me do that again. OK, sorry. Hi, I'm Raphael Baer. You're listening to Politics on the Couch. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about trust. Uh, and I, you can trust me. I'm in Brighton. Uh, joining me remotely from Hove, uh, and there's a lot of trust between Brighton and Hove, although yeah, it could go either way sometimes, uh, is the producer, Philip Berman. So last uh, episode, which, uh, as it happens, was our most popular one to date, um, we talked a lot about Dominic Cummings and um, the whole debacle around that. I mean, Dominic Cummings is still there, but that doesn't mean it hasn't had some impact, does it? What's interesting is that since then, I think what Boris Johnson got very badly wrong over the Cummings thing by defending him and sending cabinet ministers out to defend Cummings is necessarily politicised every subsequent measure they take to in the easing of lockdown. So whether it's the quarantine stuff, which has been, uh, you know, there's a rebellion brewing on the Conservative benches about that, face masks. They've introduced this sort of Cummings quotient of uncertainty about the motive behind why they're doing it. So I think in February, March, even if people weren't inclined to like the Conservative Party or Boris Johnson very much, there was a sense, the cultural sense out there that the decisions were being motivated probably by the need to stop people catching this awful disease. And now I think once you've tunneled underneath the motive, the, that that foundation of thinking they're doing this for the right reasons, um, then the trust edifice that you're trying to build on top of that is very shaky and could crumble yes and since the Cummings thing it has only got worse with the head of the uk stats authority berating the health secretary about the way the government had presented their figures for the number of coronavirus tests that they'd been doing he said and i quote they appear to be showing the largest number of tests even at the expense of understanding to draw that line in thick red pencil and say you are actually corroding uh public confidence in numbers at all in your handling of this uh, by broadly speaking it's sort of double counting on the test and saying so what you say what you're saying you are doing in terms of coronavirus testing it gives an inflated expectation of what the uk government is currently capable of delivering uh, i don't know how much that reaches a lot of people uh, i suspect it's something that will definitely stoke up the suspicion and mistrust of people who are already inclined to mistrust the government. There is also this cultural idea, there's that, I mean, there's that great quote, you know, lies, damn lies and statistics, that somehow, 
oh, you can prove anything with statistics. This is a, a cultural trope, if you like. Uh, and it's very unfortunate because it is simultaneously true that there's a way of presenting numbers that, that gets you to a political point you want to make. But also there is a rigour in mathematics that aspires to a level of truth that pretty much no other discipline can claim to reach. Uh, and therefore maths is truer in a way than almost anything that that is happening in the sort of more cultural verbal realms that politics deals in it actually gets us quite interestingly into what i hope we're going to talk about with our guests this week this week's guest is the author and academic bobby duffy i'm going to make a cup of tea before we get bobby actually on i think so so you're going to have a cup of tea and when you come back uh, on air will be hopefully uh, Bobby and you'll have your tea I'm going to get a coffee so yeah. we'll we'll say bye bye to the listeners and we'll see you yeah. at the moment alright yeah <laughs> alright cool. I'll, I'll switch off alright yeah, yeah. bye download this bit yeah cool yeah in his book Perils of Perception he's written about how we're just not that good at making sense of numbers and stats in everyday life he's professor of public policy at the Policy Institute King's College London before that he was the MD at the Ipsos Murray Social Research Institute and during the pandemic his team have been tracking and analysing how public trust has fluctuated and has just released a report about that with some very interesting findings Okay, we're on. Uh, red light on. So you've got this fantastic piece of research uh, that you very kindly shared with us based on a large opinion poll the looking at the, a shift in the way people are judging the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis. And it introduces these really interesting categories or, or tribes of voters, if you like. Maybe you could very briskly sketch out for us uh, who these people are uh, and, and what it is they believe. Yeah, we wanted to look at how two key aspects right now, um, how trusting people are in the government and their measures and their views of the health risks from coronavirus interact with each other. And from that analysis, we saw there was three very distinct groups. There are a group we called the trusting, a group we called the dissenting, and a group we called the frustrated. And one of the key patterns within that is that the trusting and dissenting actually have very similar views of the health risks from the crisis, um, from the virus. Um, but they have utterly different views, utterly opposing views of their trust levels in government. Um, and what, what you see when you look at the patterns within that is that's highly related to party and Brexit identities, your chance of being in the trusting group or the dissenting group. Um, and that's a real shift over the course of the virus. When we went into the lockdown measures, we were incredibly unified with nine and 10 people supporting them. But now on the way out, uh, as the lockdown measures are eased, uh, we're starting to see those old party identity and Brexit identity divisions start to reassert themselves. And just in terms of the numbers, let's be clear. So that the sort of trusting and the dissenting, as in you know, the trusting being people who more or less act, think that the government's doing the right thing and the dissenting people who are very sceptical. And one of the things that struck me as interesting is uh, that they're, they're, well, they're sceptical up to the level of thinking the government's basically not being honest about the number of people who are dying, which is a very serious accusation to make against the government when you in a democracy uh, when you think about it. Uh, they're about 38% each. So that's just under 80% of people uh, who agree broadly about how dangerous the virus is, but are completely polarised now in terms of whether they think the government's handling it well. Is that, and then as you say, that suggests a re-emergence of, of preceding political identities. Are those party identities? Are they leave remain identities? Or is it a mix of both? How does that work out? That trusting group are three times as likely to be conservative supporters as the Labour supporters. Uh, and uh, the dissenting group, three times as likely to be Labour supporters and conservative supporters. And then the Leave Remain identities are also quite uh, stark and polarised. So you're, you're twice as likely to be a Leave identity if you're trusting uh, and twice as likely to be a Remain identity if you're dissenting. So it's kind of aligning again. I mean, the, the, the key the key point here is it's not completely aligned uh, as yet. So you've still got about 20% uh, of uh, the trusting group who are Labour supporters uh, and then 20% uh, of the dissenting group who are Conservative supporters. So there's still that sense of, for some, the 
view of the virus and the risks involved trumps those uh, identities. But uh, it's, a, it's a relatively small proportion, but it does show it's not completely aligned yet. It's not that surprising that Labour supporters would mistrust a Conservative government's handling of a crisis. And you can imagine if it were reversed, yeah, those, yeah, that, those positions might just simply be flipped round. What is interesting, I suppose, is that there's a leave remain element to it, which wasn't that well aligned before last December on party political lines. It might be a little bit more now. Um, But I think some people listening to this might think, really, still leave remain? I mean, we have literally left the European Union. And also the coronavirus, you'd have to work pretty hard to turn COVID-19 into a European problem uh, in the sense of to do with the EU institutions. Uh, So what is that distinction describing if it's not the question of Britain's membership of the European Union? Of course, uh, leave remain identities are becoming more aligned with party political identities as the parties have become more aligned with the leave remain position. So there is there's an element of that. But I mean, there is a broader point here, which is about uh, the growth of tribal politics and in that sense of polarisation in in the way that America thinks about polarisation, where it's it's become very tribal. And, and in all the academic literature, there's, there is this theory within uh, polarisation, which is called conflict extension, which is effectively, you start with one issue or a couple of issues, and then slowly your identity takes over your views of lots of issues or, or informs lot your view of lots of issues. And then uh, you've got uh, something that's, that's much more set, and much more difficult for people to have uh, conversations across divides on these types of things. And we, we looked at this in the UK and we're not there yet. We're not. We think there's a lot of discussion in UK media and, and comment about culture wars in Britain. We've got a new British culture wars and it's not really like that as yet. We're much, we're much less divided on the issues than you might think from just a casual look at the uh, discussion on this or looking at social media. But there's still, there's definite potential there for us to talk ourselves into a culture war situation. Bringing that back to our situation, then leave remain. We might not be as far down that that journey uh, as as the Americans, uh, but one sense during the Brexit debate, as you say, that that we were getting there. What do those leave remain tribes as cultural propositions then, separate to the EU issue, describe? And how does that then would that then feed into whether or not how they feel about the virus and lockdown? With the the leave identity, there is that strength of view in. Uh, we we're a great country. We can uh, do this on our own. We've we've got the right answers. Um, we should trust ourselves. That kind of sense of national pride and uh, connection to it, and the remain uh, perhaps more uh, wider looking and more skeptical about a country doing this on their own. So there is that there's that natural default to uh, a position of uh, we can handle this uh, and we're correct and we can we can do this. Uh, versus that sense of actually there's a lot to learn um, from elsewhere and, and looking more internationally for clues and approaches to things because you know, we do stand out in uh, some ways in terms of our international approach to that. I can see the connection there in terms of if you look at what's happening, you know, if you're a Remainer and your information stream, particularly online, uh, was set up, you know, the silo that you climbed into 2016 to 2018, 19 was a very Remainy one. You'd also now be seeing a lot of information about how the UK's death rate is is that much worse than uh, it needed to be compared to, say, Greece, uh, which has done very well. Uh, and likewise, if you're a lever and your information st- structures are oriented differently, you will just be getting different information. Um, so it's quite hard to disentangle the information flow from what is a, a something else, a cultural thing about how you identify. This is where confirmation bias, filter bubbles, all of those types of things come into it, is we, we start to see the world uh, through our own identity. And it's kind of, it's partly uh, very practical points, like you say, about what we uh, what we actually see, as in what, who do we follow, what, do, what news sources do we look at. But there is also an emotional element to that in the sense of we, you know, all humans tend to look for information that confirms their views and try to dismiss information that disconfirms their views. So we kind of, we've got, we've got that natural capacity. And that, that is why we see realities, one of the key reasons why we see realities very differently, depending on our identity. It's not a case of we can just show people an objective reality and, and that will change them. It's, it's kind of much more tied up in 
uh, how we see the world uh, at a very deep level for ourselves. But now we've got a proper public health crisis, which is tied up with your political identity in terms of how you behave, how compliant you are uh, with the rules or a relaxation of the rules. And that's kind of that's a new thing for me, at least. That's a new thing for me that you've got a proper life and death, uh, direct life and death situation that depends on not just your perception, your own perceptions of the risk, but also your political identity. And that's how that plays out, how those kind of very deep passions of self-preservation and concern for others plays out against the political identity is going to be really interesting over the next few months. When you look at the, the data in, in the report, what you see is you know, actually the, the, the political judgment is drawn out of a similar assessment of the risks. You know, so people, are, I think the risk is roughly the same either side, but they just form different political conclusions to that. But both sides are misperceiving the risk. Both sides are inflating the risk in different ways. Uh, and so it, it's quite interesting you, as, you, know, you have that sort of double layer of problem here. And, and what you've just described, I think, is quite worrying in a way, because I think naively I had in the early stages of this crisis thought, oh, we're getting a bit of a revenge of the facts here. You know, we had a post-truth era, but because science is so front and centre uh, and the chief scientific advisor is now more powerful than the cabinet minister in the public eye, uh, we're going to get back to some kind of analytical rigour. And this is a sort of a learning moment for politics as that now seems to have gone. And, and you've written very well in your book about this issue of how bad we are at actually understanding risk and evaluating it. The sense of risk is incredibly high and too high relative to what we know so far. So one of the, the things that, that's in this study is that people think there's a 40% chance that they'll have to go to hospital if uh, they catch uh, coronavirus. And that's, um, as far as we can tell, that's way, way above what the actual rates are. So the imperial model that led to the shutdown uh, assumed 4.4% based on Chinese data. So we've got uh, 10 times nearly this view of risk of hospitalisation. As you say, that cuts across both the trusting and dissenting group. The only ones who get uh, slightly closer are, th are this group of frustrated people who are actually, so this, these people who are keen to relax the, the restrictions are actually closer to reality, but even they massively overestimate the risk of hospitalisation. So, I mean, like the people's risk perception is, is class, are classically bad their risk perceptions are classically bad because obviously if you've got this thing that's right in your face every day and everyone telling you and you've got uh, images of hospitals and uh, terrible death tolls you're going to inflate that risk in your head i mean we we call it uh, it's called emotional innumeracy uh, in the sense of our, our views of our estimates of reality are much more emotional than we think they are. They're not a rational assessment of the facts. We overestimate what we worry about as much as worrying about what we overestimate. There's there's two elements to this, aren't there? There's there's there's, there's sort of the availability heuristic thing that, that that has been written about, where if obviously the only news you see is about death and people going to hospital with a disease, it, you you naturally uh, in, inflate that. Uh, uh, but also, as you say, uh, the emotional bit of your brain animates your judgment in very powerful ways more than uh, the the bit of your brain that does sort of careful, slow computation. It's been suggested, hasn't it, that there's almost an evolutionary aspect to this, that you are we're very hardwired uh, to, if we see a saber-toothed tiger somewhere in the forest, to remember where that was and run like hell and in similar situations, whereas the statistical likelihood of encountering a saber-toothed tiger in the same place uh, might be really low. But that's how our brains have, have developed. Um, and you write about all these things in the book very well. And I wonder, though, whether since writing the book, you've you've sort of found any strategies for, for getting past this and communicating uh, risk in a better way. Uh, I mean, honestly, not really. I mean, I think this is you're right. It's very hardwired. Uh, and the you know, the people who didn't take notice of the saber toothed tiger were edited out of the gene pool. So they're kind of we are at the long. We're at the end of a very long line of people who've done very well from uh, inflating risks and, and being cautious, so that we've got that deep in us. And uh, I mean, I think all the it is one of those ones where we know all the issues. We can give you know fairly standard advice on you know beware of your emotional reaction. Don't don't be drawn to vivid extreme examples. Try to control it. Um, and you can do it to some degree if you've got it in your mind. And you know Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman, when he talked about it, someone asked him um, 
about how do we get better? And he said, well, uh, you know, I've been studying this for 45 years and I'm not one bit better <laughs> than when I started. And what, what he meant, though, it wasn't quite as gloomy as that, because what he meant was that that you can't really at all control that system one fast thinking. Um, it just happens. And you've got to. But what you can do if you're really if you work hard at it is get your system to slower, more rational, uh, con contemplative thinking to kick in. Uh, before you come to a, come to a view about things, but even that he says is, is really difficult to do. Um, so I mean, it's not we can't. It's so so embedded. And, and I mean, I think that the thing that I tried to talk about in the book is that that interacts with the information that we get. So from the media, from social media, um, because the media and social media know that we like those vivid stories and that kind of thing that confirms our existing views. So we get more and more of it, and it creates this system. Um, system of delusion between going back and forth between the media and how our uh, and politics and how our brains work, uh, and it, it's very difficult cycle to break. I mean, even being aware that there's that cycle, um, people tend to focus on either we've got faulty brains or we've got a post-truth media and politics. And the reality is, they're both two sides of the same coin, and they kind of feed off each other uh, and, and create that environment. How much of it is a sort of an accidental system that we've blundered into uh, and how much of it is cynical gaming of that phenomenon by political campaigns and candidates who know exactly what they're doing and can mobilise uh, those those forces very well? The reality is a third option to those two of is it deliberate or is it accidental? I mean, I think the, the third way to think about it is it's inevitable. It's, it's almost like natural law that it would happen like this. And, it, and the thing that looks really naive now is that we thought that the internet and our availability of the availability of information on uh, the internet, when the very early days, we thought this was going to be, you know, improve people's understanding of reality because all the truth would be out there. And it just, it's so naive now, looking back, that sense of Where's the human in that? Where's the human characteristics of actually wanting to have all your existing views confirmed, uh, having all these uh, political strategies to affect other people? Um, all of those such things were kind of, uh, by some, were sort of uh, ignored when it's an inevitable outcome that you get that, that type of um, natural bias within the system that is going to uh, lead to that. So give me some hope here. Well, what is an institutional environment in which you can overcome this? You mentioned Kahneman's distinction between system one and system two thinking, you know, the, between the sort of your caveman brain and your sort of wonky-ish, big pointy-headed scientist brain. Um, where institutionally does one actually see the sort of the, the system two brain in operation in a way that you know where voters can activate that and make better choices so to speak i'm not that pessimistic i would sort of more optimistic than pessimistic in the sense of we've got all this going on but we're no real no, really no worse than uh, on our understanding of reality than we were in 1940s america we got similar questions that go back to that uh, sort of era and people were just as wrong back then as they are now so this sense that we're utterly out of control in our views of reality is it always feels like that but it's not true I mean, I think that the institutional thing that I, you know, I think we are still underplaying the capabilities of a more deliberative approach to democracy in the sense of uh, citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, getting real people involved in more detailed discussions and understanding of, of big issues, um, which I do, I, I think is uh, a really important thing particularly potentially coming out of a crisis like this is what what it had to get people in, themselves involved in the process of how we recover could be as important as uh, what we do to recover because i think that that sense of disconnect between the people and politics is is a big risk and we have lots of potential in these more deliberative approaches to do to do more and involve people more and and, and my experience is when you when you see that people are capable of setting aside their tribal identities. Are capable. Don't, they don't completely upend their identity, but they can engage with particular issues in a better way, in a kind of more considered way than you would, than you would think from looking at extreme discussions on social media or in the media.
I'm fascinated by this concept of deliberative democracy. I don't have much experience of it myself or having seen it. So, And I'm sure that'll be true of people listening to this podcast as well. So, Bobby, if you could just actually unpack in a second what you mean by that, that would probably help. The best way to think about it is the parallel with legal juries in some ways. So you've got, you have a random selection of people who... Uh, ordinary people who have you know, an equal chance of taking part in this. And then they are given um, evidence from experts, but also allowed to discuss it, uh, the issue among themselves over the course of quite a period of time. So it could be a day, a weekend, or it could be repeated over a longer period. So they have time with uh, information that's kind of vetted as balanced on the issue. So you've got that's really important Um make sure you're giving uh, a full picture of things. And then they can ask questions of the experts of each other uh, and then come to a view. I guess the key thing about it is, like a jury, um, it has to have some uh, weight to it. It has to have some consequence. So you have to give over power in some degree to the people who are going through the citizens' assembly or uh, whatever the model uh, that you are using. So you've got this group of people which could be anything from you know fifty to several hundred people um, that have some influence over the outcome of this, and, and it's that sense of control that's really important. They have to be meaningful, or else it's just a talking shop for the public that can be ignored. One of the most prominent examples of this was the uh, the referendum they had in the Republic of Ireland uh, about abortion laws, which very obviously had the potential to be a hugely divisive, polarised, I mean, it involves religion, culture, generations, you know, everything. If you wanted to start a massive binfire of cultural war horrendousness, you'd have a referendum on abortion. Uh, and yet, but through the use, as I understand it, maybe I'm being overly romantic about this, but through the use of, of, of citizens' assemblies uh, and getting people in the room and really um, allowing ordinary people to be very prominent in terms of deciding who would be the witnesses, who would be the experts consulted. Uh, they got a, a very good, pretty good outcome just in terms of, I'm not judging the result of the referendum, uh, but it, it was a good outcome from my point of view on that too. But they, uh, you know, they didn't set the whole country on fire. Uh, and what was interesting is that no one even really at the top of British politics even thought to do anything like that on Brexit. You need that combination of the correct cultural conditions or you know public opinion conditions where you can accept that so it's not entirely down to the deliberative processes but i'm sure that it was an important part of it i mean one of the things that we we were sort of asked to look at uh uh post the referendum was there was a lot of interest in the select committees and, and other um political groups on you know could not just second referendum but could we uh look at doing a big citizens assembly and given given that prominence this was before uh, it was clear that we were we were leaving but after the vote and that would have been an awful context though i think to try to introduce a deliberative event so the context matters so you can't you can't just throw the worst problem that you have at a citizens assembly or a similar sort of approach and say sort sort that out uh, for us have it i mean like going back further you know if we, instead of uh, just having a vote um, having a run-up before the vote in 2016 that was much more deliberative, much more national deliberative approaches where people were given time uh, to look at it. That would have been the, the way to do it. Is you, you have to get in first rather uh, and have it part, as part of a programme that's much more organised than just uh, turn up and you've got to vote after a media frenzy um, for a few weeks in the campaign. And I think that's where the potential is. Thinking ahead, exactly as you say, if we'd thought about it differently from the beginning, we could probably have had a different sort of conversation. Maybe not a different result, but a different conversation with people. That suggests that yeah, the important thing is is as much how you frame the question as trying to get to an answer and whether people have buy-in to the motive behind asking the question. Because you're absolutely right. I remember when there was a flicker of saying between 2016, the result, and 2020, the outcome, there were people saying, oh, maybe a citizen's assembly could help us out of this mess. And what happened was all the leavers said, well, the only people saying that are Remainers because what they actually want is a different result. So we don't trust their motive. Plus a bunch of MPs saying, we have a citizen's assembly, it's called Parliament. Uh, and they mostly said it in that tone of voice uh, because they were mostly men saying it. Um, and uh, that sort of sense of institutional jealousy of you know, why should someone else arrogate the role to decide what we ask 
combined with yeah. we'd already set fire to the the bin and it was burning and the citizen yes. assembly isn't a hose that you can use to put a fire out um yes no exactly so yes you would have just thrown deliberative democracy into that burning bin i think would be was my view at the time was you, you can't you can't it's not uh, an extinguishing fluid <laughs> it would have been um, it would just have, it would, would have just burnt up i think yeah. i mean other people are different views but i think you could have destroyed the future of deliberative democracy what's central then if you want it to be a, a, a sort of for the, informing the fluid dynamics of democracy and not be lighter fluid on the flames of culture war uh, to extend the metaphor way too far what really matters is uh, who are the sort of the trusted experts who are brought in? It's the, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, that it's important that citizens are empowered to over the process and feel that they have real agency. But also, I mean, I know that you've looked at research going back over quite a long time in terms of who is actually trusted. And, and again, we have this... Uh, perception, I think, is around that tr- the politicians are, are, are held in way less regard than they always used to be. Journalism, the same. Uh, is that fair that, to think that actually we've we've just the traditional message delivery people have lost credibility, and we need to look at a whole new set of people to, as it were, inform, educate, and listen to the voters. Yeah, I, not nearly as much as you would think from the way it's discussed. Because every you know uh, every week there's a new crisis of trust that someone says there is somewhere um and that's, that's been like that for the last 20 years that i've been doing this there's always a new crisis of trust but when you look at the actual uh, data particularly in trust in politicians and trust in journalists it's more or less flat on lots of measures in in the uk i mean that's that's nothing to be proud of because it's quite a low level of trust but it was a low level of trust in the early 1980s and even further back uh on similar sorts of questions. So this this sense that it's all downhill on trust has a, a very naive view of the past, a kind of rosy retrospection view of the past that it used to be uh, very trusting. There are, there are definitely things that had gone downhill in terms of trust in the political uh, process or political outcomes uh, in, in Britain. So you've got long-term things that uh, the sense that politicians are acting for the country um, and not themselves or their party. That has gone downhill uh, in uh, the past few decades. But it's nothing nothing like the generalised sense of uh, collapse of trust. I mean, I think the all of the thinking on trust has moved on quite a bit from uh, those days, because in some ways it is um, quite rational not to trust uh, politicians to some degree. So, you know, Anora O'Neill and others talk about we should be focused on trustworthiness, um, who you're trusting to do what in what circumstances, and 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 that is you, trust naively given, as Nora would say, is is just as bad as distrust. Um, so we, we we do have that that sense of um, uh, actually it's it's not as bad as it as people have the image in their mind, but it's still not great, and we have to do something to improve that relationship. Uh, between people and politics. What we're sort of, it seems to me, we're feeling our way towards is something that's in a distinction between healthy scepticism and jaundiced cynicism. So I think you're absolutely right that, that, that to note that the unhealthiness of uh, naive trust in, in politics isn't, isn't that much better than corrosive mistrust. And actually, I think when people look back and imagine there was some golden age where uh, politicians were doing their national duty and everyone accepted it, uh, particularly in, for example, when people look at the war and the post-war period, there's been a lot of romanticising about the blitz spirit and how everyone just pulled together. It's also a period of enormous deference and you know, it's, people simply didn't question the entitlement of a certain class of people to live a certain way. Uh, and in that case, if a you know if a Tory did the equivalent of you know lockdown in his castle or in his big country estate, actually it would have been less controversial because that's just the way the world worked. So that's a very long way of saying, yeah, the decline of deference uh, and therefore people may be interrogating their leaders a little bit more aggressive is a good thing. And then, but how do we understand the difference between that? And something that just becomes a kind of nihilistic view that they're just all wicked people and you can't believe a word they say. And where are we now currently, Do you, if you can estimate it on that distinction? Linking it back to the discussion that, that we had uh, starting off really is uh, the, the, the issue now is as much that polarisation and identity driven view of trust. It's not 
do I trust politicians? It is, do I trust my politician? Um, and it's the same, to be honest, on science and, and other things. Now we've got much greater access to different scientific views. Some, you know, some of them are, are utterly crackpot views. But um, when, you, when you look at trust in scientists now, people are increasingly thinking about, you know, my scientist who denies climate change or, or whatever else. And so it's kind of that, that sense of we've got this more variable, uh, richer choice of who to follow, uh, who to believe, what information that we see. Uh, but that, that's more of the risk to me than a generalised decline in trust or an increase in cynicism as opposed to scepticism. That suggests that the, the task isn't, as it were, to rehabilitate the fact as, as something sacred that everyone can agree on, that we've sort of we're beyond that now, but something that's actually more challenging, which is to extend understanding of what the scientific method actually is, uh, which is recognising uncertainty. So we're always aspiring to get to some scientific view, some factual position, but we need to always retain some awareness that it's not necessarily right. The difference that has been described between saying the science says this with a definite article, which is a very misleading way of talking about it, because there isn't there aren't many things the way you can say the science is certain on this. You know, gravity is one, but, you know, there aren't as many. You know, whereas how a virus works is we're not there yet. Um, but that seems to be a, a much harder task to sort of impart a collective ability to deal with uncertainty. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's incredibly hard to get to across to people. And it's like, um, do we really have the time and energy to do that as individuals getting on with our, our lives? I mean, like these these tribal identities, these badges are shortcuts that take some of that away from us. So we got this this sense of, um, uh, you know, it's like a brand that, that means that you don't have to compare the product and features and prices of every single decision you make. You kind of follow a, a brand that shortcuts your decision. We are energy misers in terms of the effort that we put into uh, things, quite rightly, because we've got lots and lots of things going on. So if there's these shortcuts that help us in politics. So, I mean, I don't, the, the idea that we can get people to just be assessing all the scientific information or uh, this, you know, this view from science and that view from science, or this view from, you know, social issues or, uh, or political issues, um, is is really tough and probably not the right thing for humans when we've got so many other things we could and probably should be doing. Well, that leads us, sadly, because we're running out of time, into a really interesting whole new area of conversation, which is the the danger that I think a lot of uh, liberal-minded uh, people and people on the sort of progressive and left side of politics a trap they fall into which is thinking that if you could just get a rational data set into people's brains their politics would change uh, and people like Jonathan Haidt have, have written very well about this that there's actually there's a whole other set of moral categories that people bring uh, you know about you know what is sacred to them and ideas of honor and respect that are really core moral categories in our universe and uh, from what you've just said I think you know that that sense that if you have a, a candidate whose brand you've attached to his or her notions of honour, what is sacred, shine with yours. And then you've, that's a shortcut to, to belief and trust that your opponents will never get in, they'll never be able to break that down, or at least it's very hard for them to. Yeah, no, there's plenty of evidence from historic studies across different sorts of countries that people's political views on particular issues follow their leaders' views over time. So if you track it over time, it's not that um, the leader changes their views and then you assess it again, whether that's the right leader for me and then uh, uh, make a choice. Uh, it is much more like the leader changes their views or how they, they're expressing uh, particular views on an issue. And then the people change views, some of the people change views um, to reflect the, the leader's change of view. So the, the kind of, it's an interaction between those, not mean that people are utter sheep at all and just follow along with the political brand. It does obviously change, people do switch around. Um, but there is that element of stickiness to it, which is really important. And and I think you're absolutely right. It's a really important point that the extent to which that is not is uh, talking about it as a brand uh, shortcut is probably belittles it um, a bit because it is related to that under underlying moral outlook or values based outlook that we that we have. Um, 
And those those things are really important in politics, really important in policy making, to to recognise that 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 value position is is real for people and and relatively slow moving, but does uh, does inform a lot of our views of realities and what's the right thing to do. Well, that actually connects to a conversation that Phil and I were having before you joined us, actually at the recording the podcast earlier uh, about uh, when the truth and lies or dishonesty and a phenomenon that I've observed uh, in the last few years, which is that um, when a candidate, when a politician, I'm thinking of Donald Trump, for example, uh, says something that's sort of egregiously untrue, just really falsifiable, uh, instead of that being an affront to his supporters and people thinking, hang on, well, that's not true. I will therefore reevaluate, reevaluate uh, you as a politician. They think, well, the, the, the trust and the belief and the need to follow that person sort of forces them to accept the new reality and the untruth, which then binds them in tighter. Because once you've said, I have to accept the truth as whatever comes out of this person's mouth, it's almost like you're joining a cult and you're saying, well, now I've reoriented my moral universe to this person as the, the origin of truth and in that way bizarrely telling lies is a very good way to win trust if you see what i mean like donald trump in 2016 um, just kept saying on the campaign trail seven or eight times he just kept saying that the unemployment i don't believe the unemployment rate figures in this country they tell you it's about eight percent but it's it's like 40 percent um which was nonsense uh, uh, and uh, kind of like a uh, a really ridiculous reading of the data but it just it wasn't that wasn't his purpose it was to tell those people who are in either unemployed themselves or in fragile employment, uh, precarious uh, employment, that he feels their pain and um, he's on their side. So that that sense of using a distorted view of reality to express an emotion or an emotional connection with people is is it's absolutely core to that type of political communication. Um, and identification. So bringing it back, because we, we are now out of time, I think, bringing it back to where we started, which is your research and the, 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 the three categories we talked about of, of people in res- responding to the situation. That optimism I briefly had that we were in a moment where uh, a, a new kind of literacy around what is a fact uh, the, that w- would, would leave some lasting imprint uh, as opposed to what seems to be happening, which is the the landscape is fixed and the, the the waters of partisan identity just flow in and down the usual channels and rivulets, off it goes. Uh, having as someone who's followed opinion and these metrics for a long time, what's your sense about how impactful that window, just sort of basically March, April, May, is likely to be in terms of where we go forward from now? Yeah, not not massively in terms of those that sense of uh, now we've got a, a rational assessment of scientific facts because it was kind of uh, that that moment will be looked back on as an incredibly rare and unusual moment of national unity where we we all agreed is the, these are the things that we need to do right now. It wasn't particularly based on. Uh, an assessment of the science, much more of an emotional reaction to this sense of threat and fear that we, you know, something that we hadn't really encountered before. Um, so that that is uh, that will look like a very incredibly unusual, historic, uh, generational blip in uh, how we uh, relate to each other around these big um, crises. And then, because the normality has come back incredibly quick in terms of actually, I'm on this side or I'm on that side. Um, so I I don't think it has shifted very much in those types of things, including on trust in scientific information, all those all those different types of uh, aspects of it. I think it, it has done some good in terms of making people aware of this this scientific infrastructure that we've got all these important people doing uh, uh, useful things to inform decision making, but the politics has reasserted itself really quickly. As you might know, Bobby, from previous, if you've listened to previous episodes of this, of this podcast, it's quite normal that we talk ourselves into quite a gloomy place on some of this stuff. So just if you if you can think of a way to to give us a bit of hope and optimism. I don't feel very pessimistic about it, even though I'm, I've got a, a 
probably an optimism about this because things, I mean, like we are literally in this conversation and in uh, how we talk about this more generally, we are always prey to the same sort of biases that the public are and, and everything else. So we've got this focus on negative information and this sense of rosy retrospection that it was uh, worse in the past. And, and what, what I conclude in the book and all the things since is actually we've got to fight against that sense ourselves because um, it isn't going down. Everything isn't going downhill. Everything's, everything is literally better than we think because we're drawn to negative information. So in, in a very literal sense, it's better than we think. Um, and keeping that in mind is like, to be honest, for me, that's been the most most important part and the greatest learning from doing all this type of stuff is uh, just saying to yourself, you know, things are not as bad as they seem right now and they're not going downhill um, because everyone always thinks that all the time. And the reason that's important and the reason I think, you know, all of those people who are trying to pick, paint a more optimistic uh, picture of the future is is really important is because you can talk yourself into this sense of spirals of decline and how we talk about it how we think about it is just as important as what's happening so i would say that the the optimism the cause for optimism and sense of positivity for now is is real um and it's really important that we emphasize it because it becomes uh, an antidote to that self-fulfilling natural tendency to think everything is terrible and going downhill so i mean i'm I'm optimistic genuinely, and I'm optimistic for a purpose. If you see what I mean, there is a there's a purpose in being optimistic, uh, which is to fight that tendency to go in the other direction. And Bobby, uh, can I ask you? Do you still feel this way despite all of the uncertainties surrounding how we might emerge from this pandemic as a society? That's a really good question. My, the next book I'm writing right now is on generational differences: what's real and what's made up about the difference between generations and. Uh, reality here is the coronavirus is a generational event as the sociologists who talk about generations meant which is like utterly forms the reality and future for quite a big chunk of coming generations so actually knowing what that means we just don't know right now if we pretend we know we're kidding ourselves this is a proper once in a generation or several generations event and it could be absolutely awful and it could be great and a bounce back that allows us to do things very differently and we really really don't know right now um but it's going to be huge i mean it is uh going to be defining for uh decades um for us in terms of the next how does this impact on the coming generations and i um you know it's it's a terrible time to be writing a generational book because i need to rewrite it all the time but there is uh something uh something remarkable is going to happen from it in either direction we just don't know which well and and interestingly i mean in terms of the question of risk management the 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 reality is if you're over the age of 75 uh just the risk is so vastly different so if you're under the age of 30 i mean they're, they're they are it, people are having very very different pandemics not just in terms of their uh economic cultural ethnic profile but age profile as well and so that sense of coming out with some kind of national story of what the coronavirus meant for us uh, which is uh, you know pronoun that pronouns that people really want to use it, it is really going to be very difficult and well as you say it'll take a really long time yeah i mean exactly so this has got so many generational and age-based effects so the health effects are much greater on older groups the economic effects Will be felt much longer and for uh, and already the younger people are suffering more in terms of economic loss on job losses and, and other things so i mean again the main thing that i'm trying to keep in, in you know an, on an optimistic note is uh that this we always think there's going to be a generational war on the or conflict on the back of these types of things that old versus young and there's no sign of that again i mean this this i this idea that was going to be uh, uh you know peer peer based age peer age group peer based uh, conflict between different groups is just there's no sign of that people people's connections up and down the generational uh, ranges are much stronger than their uh, connections across so we care about our grandparents and our grandparents care about us uh, and it's um that that is really important to hold on to in this is that no generational conflict huge generational connection and care and that needs to be reflected in how we approach um, the uh, coming out of the 
virus crisis and then the economic crisis that's going to follow. I think that's a brilliant note to, to finish on because it is nice and optimistic and I think it gives us a moral duty to share this podcast far and wide, share it with your grandparents, share it with your grandchildren uh, and uh, hopefully we can all be a bit more hopeful. I, 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 I'm with you a little bit on, I'm capable of optimism when I remember that all the dials on every worthwhile metric of progress show that if you were to it's like the sort of the rules the unveil of ignorance thing. If you could choose to be to spontaneously appear uh, as a child, as a newborn baby, at any moment in history, anywhere in the world, you'd probably choose right here, right now. Yeah. Unless you're an Arsenal fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate the time you've taken off. I know you're very busy with this report, but thank you very much indeed. No If you would like more information about the King's College report we discussed today or Bobby Duffy's book, that's all included in this week's show notes. Thank you to Out Yonder for the music and mixing, though any issues with sound all down to me. And on our next edition, we're very excited to announce that we have Helen Lewis, author of Difficult Women, staff writer at The Atlantic. She's presented the BBC's Week in Westminster is a regular on Radio 4's News Quiz and an occasional panellist on Have I Got News For You and she is on the steering committee for the Reuters Institute for Journalism at Oxford University. So one of the many topics she'll be discussing with RAF is the failures of political journalism. Thanks for listening and hope you tune in next week. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.